This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. Now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Fresca, and welcome back to our podcast. Tommy, what do we got today? Today, we're going to talk about a term that's frequently used in the 19th century, which is a robber baron. Basically, the successful industrialists who business practices were pretty much ruthless and unethical, but they made a lot of money and um, they become well-known throughout the world. So today we're going to focus on two in particular, Cornelius Vanderbilt and John D. Rockefeller. And then part two, which will be next week, we're going to look at J.P. Morgan and Andrew Carnegie. And just like a quick thing before we get going, a robber baron in itself, the terminology is not by any means considered a, a nice thing. No, it's uh, not nice. Right. These guys are meant to be shown as these were like these wealthy robber barons that preyed on the poor masses of America. And, and today, based on what we talk about, maybe you guys will see them in exactly that light or maybe some different light. So, uh, you know, let's get to it. So we're going to be looking at the Gilded Age, which really extended from 1877, really post-Civil War to around the turn of the century, where it's sandwiched between basically Reconstruction Era and the Progressive Era. And you had a lot of rapid economic growth in the United States, particularly in the north and western parts of the country, a time of um, really like a very limited government when it came to economics and when it came to overseeing business, which is why some of these men were able to, these robber barons were able to build the amount of wealth that they did. Gilletage as a term is actually coined by Mark Twain much later on, where he makes fun of this time period where he says that there's so much wealth and growth and specifically economic growth, but all of it just seems really pretty but it's really not. It's gilded. You know, inside it's rotten. On the outside it may look golden and, and pretty, yeah. but it's really not. And these robber barons that we're going to discuss in this two-part episode, there's technically, you could consider quite a few of them that are almost like a quasi-robber barons, but really there are only four main robber barons. Now, some people kind of roll Ford into that, but I feel like Ford is already past that era. He doesn't really belong here, uh, per se. Uh, and in the early aspect, when we're talking about Vanderbilt, who kind of starts this, because he's like the first one, and John D. Rockefeller, you also have Gould. Um, but again, he doesn't quite reach the same level. I mean, John D. Rockefeller to this day is the wealthiest American of all time. After the Civil War, uh, lands west opened up, right? They were cleared of Native Americans. They were very rich, wealthy lands. So the idea was to bring cattle and wheat from those lands to the eastern markets, right? So they could feed factory workers. And these factory workers would make tools and machinery to mine gold further out west and silver and copper. Point was that all of this called for fast transportation, which really yeah. the key to all of this wealth and this American economic growth after the Civil War really centers on rail. Railroads. You need the railroads. That's it. Like none of this is possible without that connectivity of railroads. And that's what a lot of these robber barons start to realize pretty quickly. And they kind of work together with other robber barons or other industrialists, right? So they're yeah. all working together to control the market, to keep costs down, to build more railroads so they can get their goods all over the place. And then when it's saying speed, we're saying fast. It's fast by the standards of you know the 18. 1870s, 1890s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By today, we'd be going nuts. I mean, this is not like 
you know, Amazon drop with the drones dropping stuff off at your front door. Okay. This is, this is taking still weeks and stuff like that to get stuff around the country, but it's faster than anyone's ever seen it before. It's faster than the horse and buggy. Right. And they're able to get these goods and, but all these have to be built. So it's not only putting the, like the railroads, but it's also building the actual railroads themselves. Right. And the raw yeah. materials for that. So and then people are seeing, like, well, they need steel, they need copper, they need all these things. And that's what they're going to start doing. When you control the means of production like this, that's where this wealth is going to is going to come from. So the federal government provided the land. Right. And actually, they did this through. Oh, they want this. Uh, they want this. Yeah. I mean, there's so much corruption. Of who gets the land? Who gets the contracts to build it? But they, just needless to say, federal government would provide the land. Immigrants, because there's such a big influx of immigrants in the latter part of the 19th century, that they basically provide cheap labor. I mean, that's basically what they yeah. do. And steel is eventually provided by Andrew Carnegie, which we'll get to in the next episode. Money and banking issues are provided by J.P. Morgan. When it comes to the railroad itself, you get such people as the first person who we're going to discuss today, and that's Cornelius Vanderbilt. Yeah, Vanderbilt and Gould, really, railroad kind of became the ticket to their enormous wealth. That was key. Gould is overshadowed by Vanderbilt. That's just why we're not doing a podcast on him. These are the guys that kind of step into this and they're like, all right, this is a perfect opportunity to make money. And we have to start with Vanderbilt because he's the first one that, that was ever called a robber baron. Yes. So he, the first time that term was used, it was used to talk about Cornelius Vanderbilt. He was born in 1794. When you start looking yeah. at it, in 1794, I'm like, wait, that's John Adams territory. Like, yeah, he, he's only, George Washington. He, yeah, he's talking, you're talking to someone who's, who was, who's like father was alive during the founding of the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, literally, like, that's what was going on. Cornelius Vanderbilt, born May 27th, 1794, on Staten Island, New York, right? His parents were farmers, but his father actually made a lot of money on a side gig. He used to have a ferry, and uh, he would basically move produce and merchandise, merchandise between Staten Island and Manhattan. It was a sailing vessel, just two masts, uh, a fairly small sailing vessel. And he would literally just move food and merchandise from Staten Island to Manhattan. And that was like his side gig. And the side gig eventually became the main gig. And younger Vanderbilt, Cornelius winds up working for his father on the water. And he attends school for a little bit of time. But for the most part, he just, you know, kind of becomes an apprentice of his father. He did not come from extravagant Any real wealth or anything. Yeah. No, humble no, dude. No. Humble dude. Working uh, class. And that, that work ethic. And we're going to say he was not the nicest person. We're no, going to no, see no. that's going to be a common trend. They have to be ruthless. But they would argue that that ruthlessness is hardworking. And that this is an example of capitalists, especially in the day. It's yeah. I have this much, now I need this much. Like it's always yeah. this more. How much more can they get? So what winds up happening is he asks his father for a slow a small loan if he could get his own ship. He, again, it's a sailing vessel, kind of move his own merchandise between Staten Island and Manhattan. And his father lets him do that as when he's still a teenager. It's like 15, 16 years old, and he starts transporting his own cargo around New York Harbor, right? Kind of becomes very known in New York Harbor uh, based on something that he winds up doing for the rest of his life. You know, because his father's helping him out and his father already has this little business of moving. Vanderbilt's like, well, I'm still kind of getting money from my parents so I could undermine prices. So that's what he does. He starts to really lower his prices. So that way he's almost like getting his dad out of the business because he's undercutting his dad's prices as well. But people start using his shipping company. And eventually he acquires a small fleet of these boats, more or less just New York Harbor is his, specifically between Staten Island and Manhattan. He's moving produce and other things as such. In 1813, so this guy's like 19 years old, winds up marrying his cousin, Sophia Johnson. First cousin. First cousin. They had 13 kids together. It's crazy, but not necessarily for that time. 
a couple of them, one dies very young. I believe only like four years old. So unfortunately. Yeah. So Cornelius Vanderbilt, he really starts making his money in steamships. Before railroads, the steamship business is the business. And the monopoly on transporting goods and other things in New York City at the time was actually held by the guy that created the very first ever uh, steamboat. I don't know if you saw that, but it was the Fulton company. Fulton, yeah, Fulton yeah. company, yeah. Initially, he looks for a partner and he works with Gibbons and basically to create this new company. It's a ferry from New Jersey to New York, across the Hudson. The Monopoly belong to the heirs of Fulton and Livingston. And they particularly granted this license to this Aaron Ogden. And they were like, you could run the ferry between New York and New Jersey. And that's where it all comes into play. Basically, they compete with each other. And then Gibbons sues Ogden, right, in his company. That is a monopoly. And Vanderbilt actually acts as a lawyer. He starts appealing the cases against this monopoly ruling that was ruled um, by the states. And it goes all the way to Supreme Court. And then what the Supreme Court basically rules in Gibbons and Vanderbilt favors saying that the states have no power to interfere in interstate commerce. So they can't rule this a monopoly. Only the federal government can rule a monopoly and the federal government is not ruling this monopoly. It's considered like a landmark um, ruling, a landmark case pretty much protects the, the competition of interstate commerce because interstate commerce is supposed to be controlled by the federal government, not by the states. Basically, a lot of the prosperity that, that the United States generates during this time is because of that Gibbons case because it does not allow the state to control inner commerce between the state. So eventually what ends up happening, they basically start making money controlling the Hudson more or less at that point. During this whole time too, he's undermining the competition. So if, if someone else tries to start up, he just lowers his rates to the point where they can't compete with that and then he buys them out. Yep. And that's, and that's what he just keeps on doing. He takes over companies this way. They said he literally controlled all water trade around New York City. They're saying by mid-1800s, it was his. Like, he just basically bought out all competition. Yeah, he took over the Staten Island Ferry, which I believe still runs today. That's why he was actually referred to as Commodore, which is the highest rank in the United States Navy because of all of his steamboats that he owned and stuff like that. So after you have the gold being discovered in California, 1849, there's no transcontinental railroad yet that has not been built. So we have to keep in mind, this is all happening before the Civil War. That's why he's like the first guy. Vanderbilt yeah. launches a steamship service that will transport people from New York to San Francisco. But it was through a route across Nicaragua, which is interesting because Nicaragua was one of the initial sites that was later on thought of as where we could build a canal between North and South America. And the reason why Nicaragua was the way to go is because although it was wider than the Panama Canal that eventually became the site, it had a massive lake in between. So actually it was easier to get through. Yeah. So what he would do is he would br- his steamships would bring prospectors uh, from New York to Nicaragua, then he would have like a little bit of land. He would put him on other steamships through the lake and then on a little bit, you know, walking again, not walking, but, you know, transporting them through whatever means. And then back on another steamship up to San Francisco. This route was much faster than any established route that existed at that point, specifically going around Cape Horn, right? At the southern tip of South America. So Vanderbilt's new line was an instant success. He earned more than $1 million, which is about $26 million in today's money, in the first year that he decided to expand his uh, steamboat business from just the New York area to make it more of a national steamboat service. Yeah, it's being super successful. They're making tons of money, literally tons of money. You want to talk about the Civil War with him at all? Because he has uh, a little interesting thing. I mean, he does. I guess doesn't it's he, not. He he gives his ships over. He, what, well, he, wants, he tries to donate the Vanderbilt, which is his biggest uh, ship, to the Union Navy, but the Navy says, "Ah, this war is going to be over super fast, so we don't need it." <laughs> 
basically, the, so he leases it out to the War Department. Eventually, um, he actually needs to, the, the War Department needs his help. So he donates to Vanderbilt the outfit, it, make it into like a warship, basically, with like a ram on it. And he goes and actually fights the uh, ironclad Virginia to help yep. break up the uh, shipping lanes and stuff like that. And it's during this time, too, that his um, he actually gets a Congressional Gold Medal of Honor for, for donating to Vanderbilt. But it's also during this time that his son dies in the war not he just gets sick and dies his his son the heir apparent to his fortune george washington vanderbilt ii actually uh dies um during the civil war because of this he um that doesn't step away i don't think from the steamboat energy but he has all this money he's like all right, i already control the water lanes now i need to control the ground what's going on, on the ground too and that's that's the railroad yeah and, and the railroad thing when you look at it he goes back to where he started he goes back to new york by then he has a humongous house that he built in new york city he's you know that's where he moves his family he buys the Harlem line. And it, the reason why I'm kind of bringing that up too is because it was a railroad which was basically considered worthless. It had one advantage. It was the only rail, steam railroad that entered the center of Manhattan. It ran down 4th Avenue, uh, which would later be Park Ave, uh, to a station on 26th Street. And then it kind of just stopped. So it was one only steam railroad that ran through the center of Manhattan, but it didn't go anywhere. It basically stopped. And at that point, it was connected to like a horse-drawn streetcar line um, where you basically had to get off and get on a carriage and go from there. And eventually, it would take that carriage from Manhattan to Chatham Four Corners in New York. And then from there, there would be a connection to other railroads that would run east and west, specifically eventually, uh, which is what his dream is, and he makes it happen, to Chicago. So he buys this really useless piece of railroad, and a lot of these railroads before Civil War, this one was built before the Civil War, kind of weren't really connected. They weren't standardized. They didn't have the standard no, they just, width. They just existed, yeah. They just existed. So he bought this one because it ran through Manhattan. And basically, he's like, all right, like right, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to make it standard. And then what he did is where it connected to that horse-drawn streetcar line, he wound up buying that area and extending. Does, yeah. yeah, He extended his railroad through Manhattan uh, you know, two Chatham Four Corners. And basically within like two years, he had the only railroad that went through the center of Manhattan to all points east and west, including yeah. Chicago. And at this time too, he started selling the last of his ships in order to concentrate just on railroad. So he buys the Hudson River Railroad in 1864, the New York Central Railroad in 1867, the Lakeshore Michigan Southern Rail Lines in 1869, the, um, the Canadian South in 1870. So he's buying all of these together and he's making it into one of these really first one of these giant corporations in the history of the United States. Yeah. He's just consolidating all these railroads together. And this is, remember, there's, there's no antitrust Trust laws yet. whatsoever Not yet. at this point. Yep. So what he's doing is totally legal by the standards of the day. And he's Absolutely. just doing it because it, it's working. As he buys more, he's getting more money. It's not that other companies didn't try to stop him or they didn't want to sell to him, but they had no choice at one point because he was just becoming so large and he could just undermine their prices. They had to sell just to make something. This is what brings him in rivalry with Jay Gould, right? Because Jay Gould was another big railroad guy. And Jay railroad Gould kind of started about. with, yeah, he started with the railroads. He was always the railroad guy. And Vanderbilt wasn't. Vanderbilt was was the steamboat guy. So that when Vanderbilt started buying up all these separate pieces of nearby, especially Eastern railroads, and then connecting them and standardizing them and basically creating an empire, Gould was kind of getting a little ticked off because of the fact that 
Vanderbilt, as we knew from his young age, his number one thing was undermine and cut prices, just cut prices. I mean, he would work on a minus. A lot of these guys that, you know, most of these guys that we're going to talk about at some point or another in their life worked on a deficit just to undermine their competition. And they were willing to do that. And that's what was happening here. He winds up making all kinds of shipping deals, essentially. And that's kind of what brings Vanderbilt and connects him with John D. Rockefeller because he makes a deal with John D. Rockefeller, who we're going to discuss in a few minutes, where he goes, hey, listen, um, I will give you a super cheap price if you let me move your oil, if you move a lot of oil. So like I scratch your back, you scratch my back. You're going to give me a lot of product to move. I'll be moving more product then, and therefore I will make a little bit more money, even though I'm making your price cheaper. The rivalry with Jay Gould. Jay Gould's considered uh, a robber baron as well, which is, as we said, a very negative. Well, he winds up doing. He, he, Gould he hates Vanderbilt, right? So he tries yep. to get him. But Gould does a lot of really underhand. Not they all. They all do underhand things. But Gould does a lot of stuff um, that really affects. He actually gets involved, even like Grant's brother-in-law, right? Yep. And does bribery. Bribery the assistant secretary of the treasury and stuff like that. Winds up trying to corner the gold market, right? And he actually winds up causing kind of a recession in the United States after that. And Gould winds up being um, killed. He's murdered by a former lover that like when business partner tried to extort him, he's like, no. So she, he winds up, uh, she winds up shooting and killing him in 1872. He did everything to try to keep uh, the uh, Erie Railroad away from Vanderbilt. It just didn't work. No, couldn't do it. Oh yeah. He's another podcast, I guess you could talk about, but yeah. A lot of political cartoons on that guy. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. He's the one. Yeah. So when Vanderbilt winds up dying, we have to remember he's alive in 1790s, right? So Cornelius Vanderbilt winds up dying January 4th, 1877. He is 82 years old, which is considered very old at the time. Yeah. And he was um, worth about $105 million at the time. That's uh, 1877 money. Yes. That's so crazy. It's, that's a crazy amount today, yeah. I mean, obviously you have your Elon Musks today and Bezos, but like these guys are at that level but when the disparity was even bigger between those stuff. Yes. Yeah. When where a million dollars was like, it was like a made up word. Yes. Uh, $105 million. So he leaves 95% of that to his, um, to his son, William, and eventually through his four grandsons as well. Vanderbilt was really not the most giving guy out of the people we're going to talk about here. He was definitely not. Yeah. He donated a little bit to churches and stuff like that. Right. But and not much. Are- not much. No, most of it, he got a couple of tr- trusts, like $200,000 and $400,000 I've ever seen, but all these like trusts and stuff like that. He said he lived a pretty modest lifestyle. He didn't build big houses. The only thing he really liked to buy were racehorses. It really wasn't until his relatives, his um, heirs, they built like the uh, Vanderbilt houses yeah. and stuff like that. That was that was much later on. That was after his death. We also failed to mention that he built the Grand Central Terminal, essentially, not well, Grand Central Depot in New York City, which eventually is replaced by the Grand Central Terminal in 1913. But it's in the same place, and they basically build up on it and make it bigger, larger, and that's what today is the Grand Central Terminal. But when he built it, the construction of the Grand Central Depot in 42nd Street in Manhattan, uh, he started in 69, and it finished in 1871. And that was the main terminal for all of his New York lines and all points east and west. But what's crazy is what I was reading about this is the fact that when he was building the Grand Central Terminal, he was told that it was so on the outskirts of the city that like, dude, it's too far. Why are you building on the outskirts of the city? And it's so funny because like we've we've been to Grand Central Terminal and that is not the outskirts of New York City today. Like it's like yeah. the center. And, you know, and at the time this was like off to the side and he's like he bought cheap land because there's nobody there and now when you get there i mean that's the main hub you go into the city with 
It's just the irony of the fact that at one point in 1870s, this was the outskirts of, you know, the central New York City, which is kind of crazy. But yeah, so he gives some money to the church, as you said. He does eventually uh, give $1 million to the creation of Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, that is named in his honor. But again, this guy dies with $105 million. He gives away maybe $1 million, a little bit more. He is not known as a guy that's a philanthropist by any means. However, the next guy on our list definitely is. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The next guy that we're talking about is John D. Rockefeller. So John Davidson Rockefeller, he is a son of a traveling salesman. Um, and a traveling salesman was actually, everywhere I read, they said that John D. Rockefeller's dad was kind of like a, I want to say cheater, liar, but he was. He was kind of like a um, Ponzi scheme kind of guy. So Johnny Rockefeller was born in Richford, New York in 1839. Let's keep that in mind, right? Vanderbilt yeah. by this time is filthy rich already. Vanderbilt is already a name. John D. Rockefeller, born into modest means, raises turkeys, sells candy, does random hey, jobs for neighbors. He's hustling. He's hustling. He's yeah. a hustler. He was a hustler. In 1853, Rockefeller family winds up moving to Cleveland, Ohio. And that's where he attends high school and he studies bookkeeping at a local university. That kind of gives him his thing. He decides to, he starts to really get into numbers. And specifically, when he worked for this shipping company, they shipped uh, grain, coal, other commodities, whatever they were shipping. He was the main office clerk at this Cleveland commission firm. And eventually, he started to basically become the main guy in the office because he would be like, all right, well, if we move this shipment to this state, it'll be a little bit cheaper. If we contract this guy, it'll be cheaper. If we move to this railroad, it'll be cheaper. He got so good in like figuring out the best possible deal based on all of the different components of trying to ship an item from one side of the country to another, that he basically kept yeah. on getting better and better and better and advancing in his position. Oil's where this guy makes his money. He makes his money in oil pieces. Oil's not what it becomes yet, obviously. Yes. So it, it's not um, super important in the United States at the time when he's really starting to put it all together. So he'd be, like you said, he was like a bookkeeper and he concentrates his business on oil refining, right? You can't just pull oil out of the ground, put it in your car. It doesn't work like that, right? So he finds the, he uh, creates the Standard Oil Company in 1870. Basically, he runs it until 1897 and he always remains his largest shareholder. That's how he's taking on his money. So his wealth starts to soar as kerosene and gasoline grew in importance. He becomes the richest person in the world. Because at one point, he controls 90% of all the oil in the United States. And the United States is the world's largest producer of oil. Yep. He controls 90% of it because he was buying up all of these smaller companies at the time and just basically fixing them up and making them run more efficiently because that's what he was good at. And then, but then he controls their assets. So again, he's controlling the asset that everyone wants. So he, he's setting the prices. Crazy, right? They said his personal wealth in 1913 was $900 million, which was 3% of oh, the yeah. total U.S. gross domestic product. That's yeah. crazy. That his peak wealth, his peak net worth was um, $24.7 billion. He was the first um, American billionaire, the country's yes. first billionaire. So 
that so you're talking about money, just the money that he was able to generate. Because you think about it, you control oil. Imagine how much money you control. I guess you must want to get to it now. Why not? Like it's eventually broken up in uh, 1911, right? Standard Oil, yeah, and because of antitrust laws, and it's broken up into 34 separate companies. And these some of these companies are Exxon Mobil and Chevron, which are yeah. some of the highest revenue companies today at BP. These companies make billions of dollars today. He controlled all these companies yeah. as one entity. So that just gives you an idea of just the wealth that he had. I it's saw a, I saw like a graphic of it, like how it, when it was broken down and broken up. I mean, every major gas company, meaning like gasoline company yeah. you can think of right now that you get gas from, that all stems and can be traced back to his Standard Oil. That's how much money this guy had. Yeah, every like name brand one ones you see advertised, uh, I guess, on yeah, TV yeah. or ones that you probably see on like highways. Only like the, you know, Jimmy's Gas and certain, you know, those he didn't control, but that's really it. Like all those other ones was was somehow controlled by Standard Oil, which means Rockefeller was getting a cut every time someone filled up. And it wasn't just, this is before electricity was used mostly in homes. So everyone had like kerosene lamps and stuff like that. So if they wanted light, that's yeah. how they were getting it. All right. So how did this wealthiest American of all time and actually the richest person in modern history, right? How did he get his wealth? Johnny Rockefeller, as we mentioned before, he was a hustler from a very young age. Father was a con artist. Um, not much there to really learn from. Starts off as a bookkeeper, pre-standard oil. And then he winds up going during Civil War. He actually does not fight in the Civil War. No. But he does borrow some money. Right. At one point, he borrows some money from his father and he starts to initially it's a produce commission business with another guy named Maurice B. Clark. And they wind up raising about four thousand dollars, which in today's it's like hundred twenty thousand of capital produce commission. So what they started to do is they're basically moving food and they start by moving this food first, second year business. They wind up making literally like four times the amount of money, right? Profit that they put right into away, it. Yeah. So because the civil war is happening, yeah. these guys are moving. You make money mad. during war. You make money. Yeah. You can make money during war if you control what they move food. Need. Moved food and supplies. They were basically the movers of food and supplies. Wind up making tons of money. He winds up not fighting, hiring substitute soldiers. That was like a thing for wealthy people. And he wasn't really super wealthy yet. He just, he was a businessman whose business well, kind of took enough off. Enough to pay for someone else to fight for him. <laughs> yeah. Know? And he said he did this primarily because his business was considered like essential for military and war effort. And there was nobody else that could do it if he stopped. So that's why he did it. But he also, on top of that, actually donated a whole lot of money to the union cause. So like, it's not like he was just like trying to hide in a sense. They need, and same thing that you saw with Vanderbilt too. They knew they needed the union to win. Like their industry was in the North and they needed, so it was in their best interest that this war ended with a union victory. He was an abolitionist, supported the New Republican Party, very religious, always said, God gave me money and the ability to make money and uh, going to help others with it. And he does eventually do that. We're talking pre-electricity. If you wanted to heat up your house, if you wanted to have any form of light in your house, use kerosene, as you mentioned yeah. before. Whale oil was too expensive at this point, right? That's what I was getting at. Whale oil is yeah, just- Sorry. It's because the whales were all pretty killed off at this point. That's kind of what's going on here. <laughs> there was not a lot of refineries. Let's put it this way. No, yeah, but they were wasteful. They were wasteful, right? That's what you're getting 40%, at. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. 40% yeah. of everything that went, once they refined the oil, crude oil was refined into kerosene, eventually gasoline, and so on and so forth, and usable oil. 40% of it, the waste, just went somewhere else. Well, it went in rivers or they made massive piles of it. Right. So they just just dumped it. Rockefeller's like, no, this is profit. This is, you can use this for other things. 
Right? Yep. Like lubricating oil, petroleum jelly, wax, tar. Yeah. So like, bam, he's like, we can do a lot of other things with that. So he would he would just find ways to bring the cost of oil, the refine it down. So he was making more of a margin by selling it. Yeah. I mean, ultimately what the guy was doing is he was using every byproduct possible, kind of like, you know, the yeah. hot dogs aspect of, of meat. Um, yeah. Why not? Like, yeah. I'm going to make money off the stuff that these other companies are throwing out. Because he said, if to try to get an oil well, you're a gambler because you can, maybe you strike oil, maybe you don't strike oil. He goes, I don't want to do that. I want to refine the oil because once someone finds oil, there's nothing they could do with it unless they refine it. I'm going to be the guy that's going to refine this oil for you. So initially he doesn't have the the capital that's needed for his very first refinery. So he goes into business. We know this, right? He's partners up with a guy and switches from food stuff, which is what he was doing this war, moving food to building his first oil refinery in 1863. Um, so civil war is kind of still happening. He does this in Cleveland. And mm-hmm. once he buys these guys out, he becomes like the sole the sole owner. So he's getting the profit. By 1866, his brother, William Rockefeller Jr., he also got, winds up building another refinery. So he goes partners with his brother. So now they have two refineries. By 68, he basically keeps on borrowing money and reinvesting his profits yeah, right yeah, away. He's good with it. He's smart with it, without yeah. a doubt. He's just like, I'm going to borrow more money because I made a little bit and I'm going to get another refinery, another refinery, another refinery. And because he's using all these refineries waste to make up that minus that percentage, he's able to pay off his loans fairly quickly. And eventually what ends up happening is he creates a new company, which is known as the Standard Oil That's Company. Oil. Yeah. When they're in Ohio, he needs to still ship everything, right? So yep. he becomes joins up this cartel, basically, to control freight rates, right? Yep. Formed by this, the South Improvement Company. And they offer special bulk um, deals, basically, to Standard Oil. They basically say, are you going to get special treatment as a high volume shipper? So they're going to get these rebates of up to 50% of their products that other companies weren't, weren't going to get or are competing products that they're not going to get. So by doing that, he's saving a lot of money, all right? And that's going to be one way how he's going to make a lot of money too. And it's, it's, it's shady. It wouldn't be legal today. You can't do that. But again, there was no, there's no law against it at the time. So they're doing this. And this is why he's, he's able to do this to just make more and more money during the time. Some of Vanderbilt's companies are doing this with him as well. The idea is that, like, listen, uh, he guarantees them that I will be using your rails and railroads every yeah. single day for single all day hours starts. of the day because yeah, yeah. So what can you do for me? And that's yeah. what the, that's basically what's going on. And same the, thing you said before: scratch each other's back. Yep. And the issue here that you see is that a lot of these other oil companies are not getting the same breaks because they're not moving as much oil. So they slowly start going out of business. And a standard oil just in Cleveland, right? absorbs 22 of the 26 Cleveland competitors within a year of being a company. Basically, he's buying out all his competition one by one by one, which is, as you mentioned before, he winds up controlling 90% of all of the refined oil in the United States because he buys out his entire competition. Yeah. thing is, too, when he buys out his competition, it was Pratt & Rogers were like his biggest competitors. He winds up buying them out, and then he makes them his key men in the Standard Oil Trust. He's like, all right, you know what? Like, you guys are good because you fought against me for the longest time, and your companies did the best. So, all right, like, you're with me now. And instead of like eliminating them, he basically brought them in. Yeah. You know, and it's like, all right, we're going to work together and to make this better. Like he recognized his competition and what was good about it and basically absorbed not just by killing these companies, but by absorbing its personnel to work for him. A standard company was also grown horizontally as well as vertically. 
more so horizontal than vertical. Vertical, I think it's going to be more Carnegie when we talk about them next week. Horizontal yes. means you're merging other companies. You're buying all available like competition. That's kind of what he winds up doing. A uh, one point two, uh, I don't know if you saw this, is that he was really big into the idea of creating a pipeline. At one point, he winds up clashing with Thomas Scott, right? He was Pennsylvania Railroad guy. Yeah, they make, he makes like a price war with him. Exactly. In 1877, Rockefeller also buys some of his own railroads as well. But he does clash with a local guy, Thomas A. Scott. Thomas A. Scott is, comes up again next week because... Thomas A. Scott's Padawan is a guy by the name of Andrew Carnegie, which we'll get to later. But he's the president of Pennsylvania Railroad, and he get into basically the scuffle of trying to undermine prices. Scott sees uh, Rockefeller, and especially Rockefeller now starting to buy up some railroads as like an incursion into the transportation fields and kind of like he's controlling in the area of Pennsylvania. Rockefeller's like, fine, I'll just build a pipeline. If you don't want to move it through your railroads that you control in this area, he'd actually build a pipeline that with pumps pipeline to control it, yeah. to control and move it's, it. Like he bypassed he it himself. I don't need the railroads. I'll do it myself basically. And it's during this time that he's also getting sued for the first time, right? A lot of, mon- yeah. of monopolizing the oil trade and he's getting killed in the press. That's really, it, it, it affects him. It causes him a lot of anxiety, I believe. I mean, he writes about yeah. that a couple of times because the press is just, you know, not painting him in a positive light and he's reading all of it. So he, it's a kind of, it's imagine like social media today, you know, like some of these people, like celebrities and stuff or politicians that read the social media, get all upset. That's what he's basically doing. Like he's reading it and getting upset at what the press is saying about him, those political cartoons and stuff. So he's saying most nights he just wouldn't even sleep because he was just so anxious about what was going on. As we kind of already alluded to, it all happens in 1890 when the U.S. Congress passes the Sherman Antitrust Act. That's the beginning of the end for him. But don't get me wrong. He still dies. Not, not, like the yeah. wealthiest it's, it's American. Not, it's just, it's just he, he's not going to be able to grow his company anymore, but he did what he really needed to do. Yeah. And the initial <laughs> Sherman Antitrust Act in, of 1890, which we'll get into more in the second part, even though the law is passed in 1890 and it's an antitrust act, it doesn't really hurt existing uh, trusts and existing no. monopolies. It's, it's more, more to stop forward. the ones going forward in the future. Yeah, exactly. Until eventually Teddy Roosevelt comes into play and he's like, mm, I'm going to use this. And that's when it becomes a big deal. But the Sherman Antitrust Act is more of a written thing before it's put into practice about 10 years, if not more, after it's passed. In 1892, the Ohio Supreme Court dissolves the Standard Oil Trust. Right, The businesses within the trust become part of Standard Oil of New Jersey, and that that is like the main branch of it, and that functions as a holding company. And then eventually, after years of being sued, Standard Oil of New Jersey is also in violation of antitrust laws, and that's when it's meant to, like kind of forced to dismantle, and it is broken into these thirty individuals. Yeah, the companies. crazy thing is, he actually makes more money because of the trust law because it got broken up. Did you see that? No. So breaking all, he held over 25% of the stock. So when you break it up into 34 companies, right, he was getting more and more money. He actually made over $900 million in 1911, right, from the trust being broken apart. That's a businessman. Because it was all, they were getting like, um, he really sold any of his stocks before this. So he had such a large number. And as they were breaking up, they just they just got more money for those shares. They got like proportionate shares in each of the new 34 companies. So he was basically still owning 25% of all these companies that came out of so out of those 34 new companies. So he was just rolling and saying, all right, fine, break it up. You know, it wasn't going to affect his wealth. He actually made more money because it got broken up. Rockefeller winds up donating more than half of his wealth to various educational, religious, scientific causes. 
through his Rockefeller Foundation. So as opposed to Vanderbilt that left 90% of his stuff to his son, uh, Rockefeller, more than half a billion dollars just goes right to donations, philanthropy. Also funds the uh, um, an establishment of the University of Chicago, the Rockefeller Institute of Medical Research, now Rockefeller University. He moves into New York City, you know, from famous Rockefeller Plaza. He buys yeah. off, which he buys off like blocks of New York City. That's how rich this guy is. But very, very much a person that gave his money back. A few things about him that a lot of people may not know is that every year he celebrated the anniversary of landing his first job when he got this. It was a big deal for him, yeah. Yeah. Obviously. Uh, donated more than $500 million to various philanthropic causes, which I mentioned before. Winston Churchill posed to write the biography. So in 1930s, the Rockefeller family actually approached Winston Churchill to write an authorized biography of um, Rockefeller. And Churchill's like, I'll do it, but I need an advance of $250,000. This is in the 30s. And they're like, "Mm, yeah, we're not going to do it. You know, if Churchill's like, hey, these people are the wealthiest people in the world. Yeah, why not? Yeah, he's going to try to get, get the money that he can from them. Rockefeller Absolutely. also suffered from alopecia. Did you see that? He lost. Yeah, he lost probably from stress. Yeah, yeah he lost his his uh, trademark mustache, his hair. No. Um, so his hair never grew back either. He just started wearing like toupees and stuff by like 1902. That's what he did. Yep. Also, Rockefeller lived so long that his life insurance company had to pay him $5 million. <laughs> That's crazy. But he said his probably biggest legacy, though, even though he did all this philanthropy and you know, the arts and stuff, was just that he's just known for his wealth. That's yeah. really what it is. Like he's just known for how much money he had. Well, I guess uh, that pretty much you know sums up our first part of our part Robert, one, part, part one, one yes. of Robert Barons that we're going to discuss about from the Gilded Age today. Like we kind of already figured out, we talked about John D. Rockefeller and Cornelius Vanderbilt. Next week, we are going to talk about Andrew Carnegie and jp morgan um, jp morgan so until then guys thank you so much if you need to find us you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com thank you so much for listening we really do appreciate it make sure you guys follow us on all different social media accounts you can find us just by simply googling us i guess that's it we'll see you guys next week stay safe everybody I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.